Welcome to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving from us versus them to we all belong. In this episode, we explore the importance of strong neighborhood and community relationships to the health of nations and discuss how many neighborhoods in the U.S. don't have strong local ties and need structural and systemic help. My guest is Seth Kaplan author of Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society, One Zip Code at a Time. Seth is an international relations expert whose job is to help fragile states around the world. He consults with organizations such as the World Bank and U.S. State Department and teaches international relations at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome. So glad to have you here, Seth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of the organization's work, so this is a a great uh, Privilege. Thank you so much for doing this. What you're talking about in your new book is so analogous to what Civity also thinks about building community in neighborhoods, really strengthening the social fabric, as it were. What led you to noticing, caring about, wanting to discuss the idea of strengthening community? My main job, or my job up till now, let's say, is fragile states. I work on countries all over the world. On a typical day, I might be talking about Libya, Nigeria or some other country. I've worked on over 30 countries. I've traveled to over 75. And what I've learned uh, from, I'd say, hard experience, practical experience, is that if you want to understand a country and where it's going and what its problems are or its opportunities are, always start with the nature of relationships, the nature of the institutions that support those relationships, And that's between different parts of society, between different people. And so I've been doing this for many years. I had the first book on Fragile States 2008, and that sort of jump-started my whole career. I co-run an organization, work for a lot of organizations like the World Bank and State Department and whatnot. And 2015, 2016, you can guess what's going on in the United States. People started asking me, is America a fragile state? And I'm in Washington And I just come back from Sri Lanka or Nigeria and come on, we do have poverty. We do have a lot of social problems, but in Nigeria, I have to worry about traveling at night because I might get kidnapped. Places like Somalia, there are no government. The types of challenges are much greater. So so I didn't take that question seriously initially, but I thought it was an important question. I didn't take it seriously in terms of how it was framed that we are a fragile state like these places I work in. But clearly, I believe politics lie downstream from social dynamics. I think economics lies downstream from social dynamics. And so I went on a journey to try to understand what is going on in America that led us to whatever challenges we were having or are having. And I read a lot of books, traveled to a lot of places, even formed a group with several people in Washington about social capital, because again, I'm looking at the relationship element. And after a lot of thinking, a lot of work, I concluded that the problem wasn't the national, which was receiving most of the attention. The problem was the nature of how relationships have changed locally. Because if you want to think about we have these problems, well, we didn't have these problems, at least not in the same way two generations ago. 
So it's not something about our constitution, even though maybe there's things that could be better. It's not something so much about our policy because policy hasn't changed that much, no matter how much we feel about specific issues, but something dramatic has changed in our relationships at a local level. And that seemed to me the sweet spot where I should focus my energy on. I was a journalist and now I teach journalism. And one of the examples I give to them is back when people were getting news and information, when the Constitution was being written here in the U.S., is that they may have been on different sides of the issue, but I still had to go help my neighbor mend their fence or they had to help me get my cow out of a, of a ditch. You know, we were working together to create community, even if we disagreed on issues. Yes. And now we don't necessarily have those interactions anymore in the same way. We can stay entirely in our own ecosystems. You're referring to uh, something like the Tocqueville America which it wasn't just getting someone's cow out of a ditch. There was a, an abundance of local associations, an abundance of what you might call social, I'm, I'm not sure social power is the right term, but a lot, a lot of energy, initiative, uh, bringing people together place by place by place. And then something, if you look at Robert Putnam's work about loneliness and, and social change and the decay of our social fabric, he puts the peak at 1964, and then the numbers basically go down from there. So you have to ask yourself the question, what changed in 1964 or what changed in the post-World War II dynamic that, that got enough speed going that by 64 it began to have a large enough impact that it reversed several generations of thickening of relationships so what is it that occurred then? And I start with that and then I look for solutions. I want to dive into that because I want to know the answer to that question. But before we go any farther, you mentioned fragile state and you gave some examples, but I would love to sort of get a, a clear definition of when you say fragile state, what, what is meant by that? So most people, when they look at problems, they want to think technically. So typically they will, they will look for what is wrong with a place and try to come up with numbers or technical definitions. I don't find that uh, an effective approach. Uh, very simply, for example, corruption. Corruption is not good, but two countries can have the same corruption indicators, and one is doing very well, and one is doing very badly. The difference is they have different types of corruption. One is a tax, and one is a complete chaos that nothing ever gets done, And but they're the same corruption. So we have to be very careful about looking at this technically. And, and if you look at it from problems and you look at it technically, that just leads to a technical solution. We're going to build better government ministries or whatever it is, we're going to spend more money. So I look at it very differently. I think fragile states have two foundational challenges that work in a vicious cycle. One, they have no social cohesion. They're almost always post-colonial states in which many ethnic and religious groups where basically somebody drew a map in Europe, most noticeably at the Berlin Conference for Africa in the 1880s, and those borders are artificial, and a bunch of different ethnic religious groups. Nigeria's got 250. It has northern Muslims, southern Christians, it has parts that are Protestant, parts that are Catholic. It is incredibly diverse. I mean, I do enjoy going there, but there's not a lot that holds the country together. So one is the cohesion, and two... You could have, if you didn't have the cohesion, you had really, really strong national institutions that everybody accepted and that were able to manage conflict and deal with disagreement. When you have one or the other, 
you can manage uh, disagreements in society, and people are willing to compete politically, economically, fairly, because they know they're either doing it for the for the good, and they're willing to accept, I lose today, tomorrow I will win, for example, when it comes to elections, because they know it's for the better whole. When you have no institutions and you have no cohesion, everything becomes a zero-sum game, and the net result is you tend to have a vicious cycle where people are fighting for spoils of the state, fighting for corruption, and there's very little that promotes the public good at the national level and might work at the local level. So if you have that, you have a fragile state and roughly one third of the countries are fragile by that definition. Would you have counted the U.S. in that number a few years after 2015, 2016? Just curious. I would say the most obvious time was before the Civil War, during the Civil War. We had um, basically two nations in one country. Uh, the North and the South with very different ideas, very different values. And the government was, until the, there was a war, was not strong enough to manage the conflict. That's a very typical example. I mean, two, many of these countries, there's many. There's not just two. I mean, uh, Nigeria, Syria, just think of all the different countries. But here we had two competing parts of the country geographically separate, which is very important. If people are geographically side by side, it will lead to cooperation and things like that. And we had a government that was not not capable of managing the conflict. So it was a lot of ad hoc agreements that eventually were unsustainable. So if you ask me about recent history, no, we have much more cohesion than I think people give the country credit for, at least at the national level. Yes, we have political tribes, but political tribes are not like sectarian groups in Syria. It's not the same thing. And our institutions are incredibly I mean, they don't work. I live in Washington. What, what's the biggest, the favorite pastime of people in Washington? The government doesn't work. But compared to most of the most of the world, it works. It's just not very efficient, not very, I wouldn't say not very robust, but it, it's effective. It can, it can enforce its rule system. And I think really important for better or worse, and sometimes it's for the worse, but we have very strong security apparatus. So it's really hard you're not going to have a rebellion that will go up and topple the United States of America. That's uh, inconceivable. Any threat, security threat, uh, will be quite easily dealt with in this country if, if it ever gets more than a handful of people. All right. So I want to go back to that that time you mentioned, 1964. And I would love to learn sort of what reached momentum in 1964 or what occurred in 1964 that shifted uh the social cohesion of the nation or that that shifted us in a way where we were connecting less with each other? Nationally, I still think we have a decent amount of cohesion despite our disagreements. It's certainly not like it was two generations ago. And we have much more tribalism, but not severe. I and mean, we have polarization, which poisons a lot of things. So let's look at our political debates. Not healthy, not positive, but it's not situation I see in lots of places. Having said that, many things happened side by side. And those things have combined to weaken the strong associational life and has to a certain extent emptied it out or diminished it significantly, or in some places it has collapsed. Let's talk structural, let's talk institutional, because those are the two levels to think about problems. Structurally, people stop living 
in basically close-knit communities. People started driving everywhere. People started living farther apart from each other. If anyone here or any of the listeners know Jane Jacobs, what is Jane Jacobs talking about? Neighborhoods, talking about local stores, great places to meet people, talking about uh, street life and a hundred other little things that make a place work effectively. Well, what did we do? We moved everybody to suburbs, or not everybody, a large number of people to suburbs. Shopping shifted from the local store where you might have known the person. So you went shopping to a big store. Uh, Even praying, you don't go to the neighborhood church. You drive to a church. Uh, Even schools are much less place-based. You drive to, you take your kids to a school. So we can go on and on with on. Whereas we used to live in actual places and it had an overlapping, a thick overlapping web of institutions, some of which I've mentioned, a lot of them are informal. I mean, what, what schools are very important because they incubate relationships. My daughter goes to a, we might call a community school and roughly three quarters of her classmates are in the neighborhood. She can walk to those friends' houses and just the kids on the street change the fabric of the neighborhood, for example. If you begin to divide up and separate, so first you had the physical, and then you have all these institutions, and it it carries over. We still have a lot of churches. The churches are not place-based. The churches don't have a thick idea of their relationship with their their members. They become more like a consumer product, so religion itself has changed. Um, Institutions that used to be local now are not local. Lots of types of organizations, veterans associations, or what we might call trans-local associational life that used to have thousands and thousands of chapters, they have shrunk tremendously. I mean, we still have the Rotary and we still have things like that, but they're not like they used to be, and many others are not here anymore. And so you have one after the other of these things. So our relationship with institutions and our relationship to place has changed tremendously. And the net result is we have literally created a country that is, for most of us, placeless. And we've created a country that, to some extent, maximizes isolation. You're listening to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with international relations expert Seth Kaplan, author of Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society, One Zip Code at a Time. And I'll just add one more layer. Where we used to live used to be not only cross-political, It was cross-class. And I would say, while we talk about people from different political parties not living with each other, it's hard to see that for the most part when you walk around. It's the class-based neighborhoods. I mean, I have what I call foreign eyes because I lived in so many other countries. And one of the starkest things about the physical landscape of America is that there's a lot of distressed neighborhoods, a lot of them in cities, suburbans, rural areas, And those people are living a completely different existence than those of us who live a materially well-off, even if we're isolated from each other, just our daily experience. It may not be socially vibrant, but it's completely different than if you live in one of these neighborhoods in which you have lots of problems, one on top of each other. So place is defining us. And I would say place is not important in the way that it used to be. So there's many layers to this problem. I wonder, as you describe how we've systemically come to develop these isolation-based existences in a lot of ways um, or breaking some of that social fabric down for the purpose of 
you know, a larger home or private space or whatever that may be, that somewhat how becomes placeless. If I'm in a place, if I'm in a suburb, I'm still in a place. So how am I placeless? A real place has an identity, has a center, has institutions, has some capacity, has ways for you to meet each other. You're not in a place, you're in a house. And your house has nothing to do with the houses around you. I mean, I live in a very flourishing neighborhood. I walk down my street and I feel like I'm in a, a social safety net uh, of, of relationships. I may not be friends with many of my neighbors, some of them, but I know hundreds of people in my neighborhood. I know who's behind the doors. I know where to run. Uh, just these two days, my wife had to run out of town because of some family emergency and I'm having neighbors help get my kids back and forth to school. And if someone has a, a problem, I can recall the time that my daughter dropped her brother, which wasn't very good on the cement, and he's got a bloody chin, and you can just feel that pain as we Absolutely. are here listening to this conversation. And uh, my wife picked up my, my son, maybe a year and a half old, and just took off down the street, and I didn't even know where she went. And I only discovered later, she went to the nearest nurse. There's a nurse a couple of blocks from me. In fact, there's several nurses in my neighborhood that she knows where they all are. And so when you live in that type of neighborhood, you have support day in and day out in a way that you can't imagine. And then consider that compared to other Americans. They're in a house. Their place has not a lot of meaning. The only place that matters is the place they own, their property. They don't feel a stake in their neighborhood and they have very little agency. I think this is important. People don't have agency to improve society except in some distant way. So they tend to think society is working on them and, and that's not a great feeling. And that might lead to mistrust and alienation. So not only are we not practicing working with each other to improve something, we also feel very alienated because we have no stake in anything. And so there's a there's a variety of channels in which this has very negative impact, not only for people's well-being, but I think for larger po political dynamics in our country. Yeah, that's such an important point about the idea of a lack of agency. And, and just from the news side, because I'm a journalist, the idea of, you know, local news outlets being decimated. You know, without that local news, I think that can contribute. You're only seeing national news. That, that contributes yeah. for sure. I mean, I'm talking organizations, right. but news is certainly our aspirations have been nationalized. Another trend in recent decades. I'm really in favor of being the bigger fish in the small pond. You can make a much bigger difference on real problems, real people. And the more we are able to do that, the thing is, it's harder to do that than in the past. The more we're able to do that, even at the neighbor level the better we will feel, the more we will know that we have value. We will know we have a, a contribution. It has a lot of impact for how we feel about everything. So this idea that you've just been describing, which includes this nationalizing of organizations, of information, of things like that, and then this idea of you know feeling disconnected or that you don't have agency because everything feels like it's acting upon you. How do we help people reconnect with the place that they're in and find agency. This is certainly not an easy challenge. And I think anyone who says there's a magic bullet to our many social ills. And again, this is not just mistrust and polarization. In parallel, we have deaths of the spear. We have a drug overdose. We have uh, depression. 
We have loneliness. We have a lot of social problems that are rising in parallel, and we fail to see that they're coming from a common source. And I think that's one of the great reasons why we do not spend more time thinking about how to go back upstream to the source. So the way to do this, in my opinion, it involves many things. It depends where you are, what you can do. If you're a pastor and a head of a church, I would say make your church more place-based, make your church more community-oriented. From where I sit, religion in America has a much thinner meaning than it does in much of the rest of the world. That's, for example, if I'm a local government official, I would be asking myself, or if I was a philanthropist, can we think less about just helping individuals, even though individuals matter, and think more about helping places, making sure each place has an identity, make sure each place has a center. I mean, if you look at most like urban areas, each department actually has a different definition of the places they manage, the police department, the healthcare, whatever, the education. I mean, making those correspond, making them around places with an identity and a center and all of that stuff would be very helpful. What about having government instead of government of departments and functions, but government of neighborhoods? So that the functions were accountable to teams that were basically in charge and held accountable to how flourishing neighborhoods were. I mean, in a neighborhood, there's a lot of little things you can do. I can remember in my neighborhood not too long ago, a bunch of people got together and said, I mean, there's there's a little bit of a, a mall across from my neighborhood and there's a street there. And that mall isn't huge, isn't beautiful, but it has three restaurants. It has a supermarket. So it's something. And so it's like our center. People got together and they got the county to change the light. Something as simple as that. Easier to cross that street, easier to go and meet in those places. So if people were more in charge of place uh, at the, the social level, at the civic level, at the government level, there would be a, a, a somewhat different understanding about how change happens, what we should put our emphasis on. And we'd be looking for lots of little things that would encourage relationships and social flourishing place by place. Every place is different. Every place is different challenges. It's a question of reframing the problem and then thinking, what can we actually do about, about this problem that we have created for ourselves? I'm jumping back from the U.S. for a minute to your previous work. When you would visit nations that may have been considered fragile states or were facing challenges, what were some of the hopeful things you saw among people in neighborhoods, in communities, where you were engaging with the with the community? There's something we can build on, or there's hope, or I really love how they do this. Well, first of all, uh, the problems we have in our society generally shock parts of the world, because while they have political and economic problems, they tend not to have problems of local community. They tend to have very strong social bonds very strong social support networks. People, for the most part, think place matters and the people who live around them in a place matter. It's a different worldview. And it means that many, many of these individual problems that are being produced by the failure of the social fabric, they don't have those problems. They have other problems. And let's not minimize the types of problems they have, but, but they have local social flourishing. My general approach, actually, when I work in Libya and Nigeria, my job is to reduce violence and to some extent in Libya end the civil war, however ambitious that may seem. And in both places, the strategy very much is 
let's look for local social cohesion because both countries they have they have ethnic groups or clans or tribes or religious groups they do okay by themselves the problem is between the groups there's fights for land there's fight for resources and so always the question is how do you build on what is working let's not look for things that are not working which is mostly what people do let's not look for big national solutions where they're not likely to be effective even though that's what the UN focuses on let's look for local assets local strengths local institutions that do well and let's see if we can empower them to do more build them up try to create a network of local successes and then ultimately again it goes back to my two parts about what is a fragile state we need to find mechanisms to manage conflict between these parts basically both these countries the formula is very different the context is different the actors are different the culture everything about nigeria and libya is different but actually my basic framework is about finding local strengths and then finding ways for them to be strengthened built up more greatly empowered and then find ways to connect these pieces together and then find some ways to better manage conflict because if you think about it the most foundational role of a government is simply manage conflict i mean everything else a government does is second the first thing of a government the first thing of the us constitution and the first thing any government in any part of the world does it has to manage conflict conflict over decisions conflict over resources so i i try to work on this dual approach local success and some sort of overriding what you might call interplace or interlocal conflict management all right so let's come back to the us and you talked earlier about the fact that we have sort of cultivated this infrastructure that breeds loneliness that breeds disconnectedness that breeds separation breeds alienation and everything yes exactly and at civity of course we're trying to bridge some of these socially salient differences and get people to see each other's humanity and you're thinking about this also obviously one of the ways is to look for opportunities the way you do elsewhere right look for social bright spots but what if you walk into a community and and that's really difficult to find um, as I imagine maybe some communities in the U.S. are sort of in that space or in that zone let me give you an example I researched lots of organizations one of them was in Detroit Chris Lambert was the head of this organization Life Remodeled he had I mean his goal is different than yours but he had done a lot of work helping uh different parts of Detroit knew a lot of people had a good track record and then this then got an opportunity to to establish a neighborhood hub for uh an area that he had done some work in and he thought before he did this neighborhood this neighborhood was a huge project it was taken over a middle school a very beautiful middle school from the gothic 1920s middle school and he thought that creating a hub bringing in lots of institutions and opportunities and resources would be welcome it seems that way what he discovered was that cleaning up streets beautifying neighborhoods fixing people's heaters and roofs and things like that people were happy to have that kind of relationship with him moving into the neighborhood which even if he wasn't living there he was really moving into the neighborhood taking over the most significant building in the neighborhood and by the way he got it very cheaply because the department of education or the whatever the city education authorities 
They couldn't afford to maintain it. And lots of schools have fallen into disrepair and even collapse. I mean, Detroit is quite a scene to see if you drive around Detroit. And so when people found out that he took over this building, got it cheaply, and he was going to, quote unquote, do good for them, there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of frustration. Part of it was that he was white and they were black and there was a racial component. Part of it, he was an outsider and they were an insider. Part of it, he was asking them to trust him in a way that he thought what he was doing before required the same level of trust. And it, this was requiring a completely different. He was giving things to people. Now he was creating a much thicker relationship. So he had a, a, a period of, let's say, crisis. And he really had to take a step back. And he had um, a very good friend who helped him understand the picture better. And he literally had to learn what is it for me to get into a strong relationship with people in this neighborhood so that not only do we trust each other, we have that thick relationship so we can do things with each other. The key thing is uh, trust is more than dialogue. Trust is more than doing for others. Trust in this case meant we are really working together on solving some really big problems. So he had to go around and he had to gradually, incrementally break bread, meet lots of people. He had to identify key leaders street by street, area by area. Eventually created a, a, an advisory council, not only of local leaders, but of students, because that's also one of his main audiences. And this was formerly a school. He had to rethink literally what was his organization about. They had to change some of the people who are working there by hiring local people. So it ended up being an organization built from people in the neighborhood or nearby neighborhoods with a, a, a lot of influence of people who were the leaders in the neighborhood. And what they were going to focus on was determined by the neighborhood. The name was determined by the neighborhood. So you can see he took a lot of steps to make this a success, but it entailed having a different idea of that relationship, a different idea of what is involved in building trust. It basically meant a, a different way of approaching the problem from the start. I love that. I love that example. I mean, to me, that example is so civity. He had to see the humanity and bring people in and have that conversation of just building the relationship before doing any of the business or getting any of the work done. And that can build trust. And, and I think that's that's beautiful. And it can be difficult when someone comes in with resources to top down, provide for, or you know, try to dictate what a neighborhood can do. Yeah, doing too, we may mean well, but we need to think about people as more than material needs. We need to think about people as actors, agency, too much of our life. I mean, we look at people, they have deficiencies, we are doing to them. We need to have a relationship. What was civic life used to be? It was doing with each other to improve our places. The more our society is horizontal and not vertical, and vertical is not only government, a lot of philanthropy is vertical. The more we are people living side by side or on similar streets, feeling they have a common destiny and they're working together to improve their places, I think it just leads to more happiness, more satisfaction, and just joy. I mean, I feel joy in my neighborhood. And the more people have that joy, I think their idea of Everything else, including politics, will change. And that was my next question. You've started to answer it, but I'd like to go a little deeper. To make those connections is, is to, you say, have joy and to feel 
nurtured and cared for and to, uh, and to be able to see and, and appreciate your place. And then you started to talk about it could change the face of how we view politics. So to go farther, let's talk more about how people, you know, once neighborhoods impact people, how can people impact neighborhoods and how can the mending of these relationships and building and weaving and cultivating and curating and nurturing of these place-based relationships how can that reverberate upward, this horizontal efforts? How can that reverberate maybe back up toward the higher echelons of politics, the higher echelons of policy, the higher echelons of governance? I think there's actually two different questions there. So let's take the first question. How do we make places better? I mean, I've mentioned a few ideas previously, but if I'm thinking from the individual side, when I look for a place to live, and not all of us have this choice, I was very systematic looking for the right place to live. So, that, I mean, I had this mindset from the beginning that there was some sort of dynamic. And so some people might do that. We don't all, the idea is, of course, not everyone can do that. And our ultimate goal is that every place is flourishing. But as a start, I would look for associations or institutions or volunteer activities in the neighborhood. I would look for a couple of people that someone can work with. I can just give some examples. I have this neighbor who's this incredible woman. She's somewhat quiet, not very tall. You would not you would not think she was somewhat unusual, but I see her every week. She literally walks in front of my house regularly, going around visiting people who live alone in my neighborhood. It happens to be that her mother lives in the neighborhood alone, several blocks away. But I have on my immediate other side behind me here, a person who is old, lives alone. She still works. But I know that this neighbor at 903 is visiting my immediate neighbor and she's walking up and down the streets. I see her. I could not tell you how many houses she goes to, but I know she's in the house for 20, 30 minutes talking to them. Does it quite, I mean, at least on a weekly basis. And I mean, that's something it's, it's incredibly um, nice. She's also the same person who organizes the cleanup in the park and she's initiating most of this on her own. In general, I would say, People connecting with each other, forming teams, trying to find other people to the extent that there are institutions in the neighborhood. Can we help some of them? Can we create more volunteer activities or can we work together to help a, a neighboring neighborhood? Maybe sometimes what it is we work together, the ne next neighborhood over might need a lot more help than our neighborhood. So what could we team up to volunteer to help other people? I think we need to form teams. We need to find associations. We need to bring associations together to the extent that we can have a coalition of many people with the idea that we make our neighborhood socially vital. Could be neighborhood connectors, block connectors. There's a lot of things you can do. I'm just throwing out some, some ideas. And how does that affect the bigger picture, your larger question? My theory is that our politics are basically become toxic because we put too much weight on them. We've made them too much a part of our identity. We look for them for some form of salvation. We're not actually trying to look for a different solution. We're actually saying, what can we do to shift the energy, the attention, the focus of many, many more people to doing something locally? The key thing is if our energy was not driven towards a few causes and if so much nationalized and our aspirations were not all to move to a few places, but we thought we could do much more locally and we shifted our energy there. 
and many people did this, I think our politics would become quieter, less toxic, and we'd actually be working to make things better because there's an awful lot of social problems in our country and we're not going to solve them with those politics. We're going to solve them by rolling up our sleeves, finding people nearby and cooperating to make actual people, places, institutions better. I love that. Thank you so much. Is there anything you want to say that I didn't ask you that you think it's important for people to know? We should be thinking that this is a long-term process. We need to be incremental. We need to uh, be very practical. For the most part, my neighbors, I don't know what some of them, there's always small talk about politics. I can't avoid that. But for the most part, I, I stay away from politics. I want to know about people, family. I would say the less political we are in our daily lives, the more we look for commonality, the more we look for ways to cooperate. I try to steal ideas from the left and I try to steal ideas from the right. And they both have good ideas and they both have bad ideas. And that's normal. And so I would say the more we are open-minded and think that way, we may not always agree, but the less we talk about our differences, the more we talk about what we've in common and a place we have in common. My neighbors and I have the place in common. I think the better we will be, the happier we will be, and the more likely we will do something positive for others. Yeah. And I would add to that, seeing differences as strengths and not areas of contention. Income diversity, political diversity, ethnic, whatever, religious diversity is all good. But I, for one, don't highlight it. I highlight what we have in common. Diversity is good for a neighborhood, but let's highlight what we have in common, not what we have different with each other. Thank you to my guest, international relations expert, Seth Kaplan, author of Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society, One Zip Code at a Time. This is Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. Yeah.